had the opportunity to listen to Shane's message that he preached in Ovando. And I thought it would be very uh, proper to allow him to share that message with us this morning. Uh, he preached a message in Ovando that goes right along with Christ. And so uh, I, I asked him if he would be willing to preach this Sunday and bring a message that he brought to Ovando, and he did a wonderful job. And before we get into the cross of Christ, which will be next week, uh, he's going to finish up on the purpose of Jesus Christ for us this morning. And so if, if you wonder why I'm up here, that's why. So uh, y'all give him some support afterwards as well. He'll be at the door and congratulate him on his hard work in this message. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 10. We're going to be looking verses 24 to 33. The Jews then gathered around him. And they were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Good morning. Good morning. I've got a red light, so I assume I'm on. <laughs> when we first moved here, and uh, that would have been BBWC in the Kisterki timeline. In the timeline of the world, we've got BC, before Christ. In the Kisterki timeline, we've got BBWC, that would be before being blessed with children. And Missy and I lived in the what is now known as Wolfridge Apartments, and we had the opportunity to go take a look at the White House next door on the highway. So we did that, we looked at it, and it was a filthy dump, and after we left there, Missy said, I will never live in something like this. Three months later, we moved in, <laughs> and we lived there for about eight years. So, as you no, last week I preached in Ovando and it got done and I said, well that was good but I wouldn't want to do that again next Sunday. <laughs> Beware what you say. So this is probably a little bit strange for you, it's a little bit strange for me as well. The two previous times I preached I did not have, at least as far as I know, 
a uh, preacher sitting on the front row who's shortly removed from hermeneutics and homiletics classes in university. And I didn't really feel like I was taking someone else's spot and those who came in the previous times, they did expect to hear me preach and that is not the case with you today, but here we are. I'm unworthy, but I am willing and that's not always been the case in my life. I've always been unworthy of God's grace, but I have not always been willing to do what God called me to do. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, if that's all that goes on my tombstone, here lies Shane Kisterke. He was unworthy, but he was willing. That would be sufficient. Pastor Stewart's been preaching through the seven seas of creation, or the seven seas of history. Creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion the last couple of weeks on Christ. And as he said, that's why I'm here today. He thought it would fit in nicely with Christ. And then he will go on to the cross and to consummation. Let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you for the opportunity for us to be present here with you this morning. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the work that you're doing here in this church. For the lives that are being changed. For the the sin that you are convicting us of, and for the Holy Spirit who we know is here with us and who is working in each of our lives. Father, we pray that you would continue to work as you see fit, that your will would be done here at Mission Bible Fellowship. And Father, we we praise you for who you are, for your holiness and your greatness. You are an awesome God. You are full of mercy and grace and, and love for us. And There is nothing that we have done or can do to deserve the favor that you bestow upon us. Father, we just glorify you as being the almighty creator of the universe who is vast and infinite beyond what we can even understand. Lord, I want to pray this morning for those who are church supports for Robbie in Indonesia, for uh, Bob Grace at the City Life Center in Missoula, for uh, Tamara Latin working with drama in Turkey, and for Pastor Ken and Pat as they are serving you at a church in Oregon. Lord, I just pray that you would work through each of them, that you would be accomplishing your will and your purposes through them. And I thank you for their trust and their faith in you, and ask that you continue to guide and direct them as they are in ministry for you. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity to help provide for the physical needs of Robbie through Compassion International. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to bring a message this morning. I pray that you would speak through me, and I pray that I would be giving your words and not my words, and that you would keep me from saying anything that you do not want me to say. And I pray that we would all be listening to your word this morning. Amen. The title of this message is The Purpose of of Jesus Christ. To put it another way, why did Jesus become a man? Or you you might say, why did Jesus come to earth? And if I asked you what you thought the purpose of Jesus Christ was, you would probably give a variety of answers. For example, you might say that Jesus' purpose was to die on the cross and because he loves us. Or you might say that Jesus' purpose was to defeat death and Satan. Those are both true. And if you were to consult the Bible, you might give some other answers such as Matthew 1.21, where it says he came to save his people from their sins. 
Matthew 5.18 says he came to fulfill the law. Luke 5.29 says he came to call sinners to repentance. John 12.47, he came to save the world. Hebrews 9.28, he came to bear the sins of many. And those are all valid answers. But I have another answer that I want to share with you today that I believe is an even higher purpose, a, a more ultimate reason. And we will come back to this question, the question of what is the purpose of Jesus Christ. But first, we're going to take a look at John 8, 58 through 59. Please turn there with me. John 8, 58 through 59. And in this passage, we're going to look at four things, and they're up there on the slides that Pastor Stewart graciously made this morning. We're going to look at the dishonor, the doubting, the defiance, and the disappearance. And my marker in my Bible is gone from last week, so I'm looking forward to it. We ha- actually, we have slides for it. I'm going to read it out of my, my Bible. John 8, 48-59, and I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say... If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let me give you a little context for what's going on here. And the word context just simply means with the text. Con is a prefix that means with. The text is talking about what the passage is about. So we're going to look a little bit at what has been happening leading up to this passage. Jesus is having a conflict here in John 8 with the Jewish leaders. In verse 3, we see that he's confronted by the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, the Jewish leaders. And in this conflict that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders presents a series of important contrasts. In verses 1 through 20, he contrasts light and darkness. Verses 21 to 30, he contrasts heaven and earth. Verses 31 to 40, he contrasts freedom and slavery. Verses 41 to 47, he contrasts the children of God and the children of Satan. And in the verses we're looking at today, verses 48 to 59, he contrasts honor and dishonor. So, In John 8, this conflict, this argument, is playing itself out. And now we hit the conclusion of it. I said we were going to look at four things in this passage. The first one is the dishonor. 
Look at verses 48 to 51. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They have no real answer or response to Jesus' words from the previous section, so they resort to an ad hominem attack, which means they are attacking the man. They're attacking him personally. They call him a Samaritan. To the Jews, a Samaritan was the worst of the worst. And if you remember, Samaritans were those who lived in the northern kingdom called Samaria. After the reign of Solomon, Israel was split into two kingdoms, in the northern kingdom with ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah with two tribes. The tribes in the north had intermarried with pagans that the Assyrians had transplanted there. So the Jews viewed them as half-breeds. I pondered what might be a similar insult that we could call somebody today, and we have a variety of racial slurs out there that might apply, but I remembered that 18 years ago, Missy and I moved here from North Dakota, and we heard all kinds of North Dakota jokes, most of them from Wayne Cahoon, I think. So maybe it would be similar to being called a North Dakotian. Or, or maybe if I called you Bobcat fans, you'd get the picture. At any rate, the Jewish leaders were insulting Jesus verbally by calling him a Samaritan, and then they followed it up by an even worse accusation. They said that he had a demon, or in the King James, that he had a devil. This was not the first time that they had accused him of being demon-possessed. In Mark 3.22, they said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And they said that the reason he could cast out demons was because he himself was possessed by a demon. Just before this chapter, in John 7, verse 20, the crowd said to him, You have a demon. In saying that Jesus was demon-possessed, they're essentially saying that, he's, that he is insane that he doesn't know what he's talking about. In their condition of spiritual blindness, they had processed all that Jesus had said to them, and they came to the conclusion that it had to be a demon that had driven him mad. Now look at the calm answer Jesus gives them in verses 49 through 51. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. Okay, he doesn't even acknowledge that they called him a Samaritan. I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Okay, again, here we see the contrast between honor and dishonor. Verse 49, I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And Jesus follows that with, yet I do not seek my own glory. Ponder that for a moment. Jesus is the all-powerful creator of the universe. He spoke everything into existence, just speaking out of nothing. And Jesus says he doesn't seek his own glory. The Jewish leaders sought their own glory. Okay, we see that throughout the Gospels. If Jesus had wanted to seek his own glory, he could have just remained in heaven and continued in the divine glory that had been his from all eternity. Now to those who honor and glorify Jesus by obedience to his call to salvation... He promises in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Whenever you see repeated words in Scripture, know that it is for emphasis. Truly, truly, or verily, verily, or you might have surely, surely. It's literally amen, amen in the Greek. And Jesus says it to emphasize what follows. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And that brings us from the dishonor to the doubting 
in verses 52 to 58. The Jews don't like that statement. They say in verse 52, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Jesus is speaking metaphorically here of a spiritual death, not a physical death. But they heard Jesus' words in a strictly literal and an earthly sense that they are just thinking physical death. They know that neither Abraham nor the prophets had had, uh, the power to defeat death because they all died. So they demand of Jesus in verse 53, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, Jesus, who do you think you are? These Jews are pushing Jesus. They are abusively questioning him and calling him names. They clearly doubt the claim that Jesus makes. And what is that claim? It's the one Jesus emphasized in verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. That is a big claim. Verse 54, Jesus responds. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Again, Jesus was not seeking His own glory, but was willing to allow His Father, God, to glorify Him. The Jews claim God is their own, and Jesus continues in verse 55, But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know Him, and I keep His word. Why does Jesus say that they do not know God? Earlier I said that in the passage before this one, Jesus gives a contrast between the children of God and the children of Satan. Look at verse 44. We don't have a slide for that, but if you're you're following in your Bible, verse 44 of John 8 says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. This is hard language. Remember, these are the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the most religious of a very religious nation. And Jesus says that their will is to do the devil's desires. They thought that they were very holy and they thought that they knew God. 2 Timothy 3 talks about people who are like them, people who are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, ungrateful, lovers of pleasure, And they are said to have the appearance of godliness or a form of godliness, but deny its power. Such were the Jewish leaders. The first sermon Jesus recorded in the Gospels is in Matthew 4.17. At least it's the first one I've found. It's short, so a lot shorter than what I have today. Jesus simply says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, repent just means to turn away. It's literally to make an about face. If you're facing this way, turn and go this way. Okay, Make an about face and go in the opposite direction. These Jewish leaders had no repentance. They did not know God. And I find it interesting back here in John 8 that Jesus says, He knows God and I keep His word. I think this is key. That truly knowing God must result in a desire to keep the words or the commands of God. Let's say that again. Truly knowing God must result in a desire to keep the words or the commands of God. And I I put the word desire in there because none of us can perfectly keep the commands of God. But 
If we truly know God, we must have a desire, we must want to keep God's commands. Verse 56, Jesus goes on. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? The Jews actually make a mistake here. They misquote Jesus. Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And the Jews said, sarcastically, have you seen Abraham? Incidentally, both are true. Jesus certainly did see Abraham. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, by faith, saw the things promised. And verse 58 brings the climax of the dialogue. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, okay, there it is again. Pay special attention to what comes next. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is nothing less than a claim to be fully God. I am is a statement of pure existence. It is the answer that God gave to Moses from the burning bush when Moses said, Who shall I say sent me? As he was headed back to the Israelites in Egypt, God answers with, I am, in Exodus 3. With this simple statement of pure existence, Jesus takes for himself the sacred name of God. And if there is any doubt as to whether or not the Jews understood this, look at verse 59. And here we move from the doubting to the defiance. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. Oh, they got it. They, they completely understood Jesus' claim. And the Jewish leaders were ready to stone him to death for blasphemy over this claim. There are those who try to deny that Jesus ever claimed to be God. But this is one of the clearest places where Jesus absolutely claims divinity. And I, I want to pause here a moment and examine this more closely. It's not out yet, but I submitted an article on Friday for this week's Pathfinder regarding Jesus Christ being God and whether or not he did, in fact, claim to be God. I'm going to give you a, a sneak preview. The doctrine of the deity of Christ is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. In other words, you cannot be a Christian and deny this doctrine. And yet, there are apostate faiths that do exactly that. They deny that Jesus is God, and some of them even claim to be Christian. The Jehovah Witnesses, the Way International, Islam, Mormonism, and others all deny that Jesus is one with God the Father. The Muslims teach that Jesus is just a great prophet like Muhammad. Mormons claim to be Christians, and they will readily call Jesus God, but they are really referring to little g God, not big g God, because Mormonism is a polytheistic religion. They believe in many gods, and they do not believe that Jesus Christ the Son and God the Father are one. So Mormons say that Jesus is a God, again, little g, but not the God, big G. Look at verse 24 of John 8. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. I want you to notice two things in this verse. Okay, First, if you do not believe that Jesus is who He says He is, you will die in your sins. You cannot deny the claims of Jesus and have salvation. And second, Jesus again says, I am. 
It's another reference back to Exodus 3.14, taking the sacred name of God. Now, look at verses 26 and 27 of John 8, just a couple verses farther. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, okay, the Son of Man there is a reference to himself, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So by the time we get to verse 58, this is the third time in this confrontation with the Jewish leaders that Jesus uses the words, I am. Go to John 10, 30-33. This is what Pastor Stewart read, or it's part of what he read. John 10, 30-33. And Jesus is speaking here again. It says, I and the Father are one. Verse 31, it's a similar passage, a similar parallel. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Capital G, God. Jesus says he is one with God the Father, and the Jewish leaders clearly understood it. Likewise, elsewhere in the Bible, we see plain teachings that Jesus Christ is God. John 1, 1 through 3 and 14, and Pastor Stewart preached on this a couple of weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. And down in verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And we could look at Colossians 2.9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We could look at Romans 9.5, where it says, The Christ who is God over all. We could look at Revelation 1 8 and 7, verses 17 and 18 of Revelation 1. Again, these are past verses that Pastor Stewart shared with us, proving that Jesus is God. And, and we could go on and on. Pastor Jim preached about this as well. He had a list of eight key texts where Jesus was designated in the original Greek as Dios, which means God. Jesus claimed to be fully God, and the rest of scriptures support that claim. After the defiance in the first part of verse 59, John 8. After the defiance, we see the disappearance in the second half of verse 59. It says, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What does this mean? Well, personally, I'd like to see a little bit more information on that story, such as how did Jesus hide himself? But God, in his infinite wisdom, gave us exactly what we have inspired through the words of John, a brief and straightforward description of a miraculous escape. And why did Jesus disappear? Well, I think the, the simple and correct answer is that it was not yet his time to die. And obviously, dying by stoning would not have fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, which clearly foretold crucifixion. So, 
the tragic dialogue ends with two possible responses to the claims of Jesus. Okay? Jesus claims that he is God. And Jesus claims that if you keep his words, you will not taste death spiritually. One response is to accept his claims as true, bowing before him in repentance and confessing him as Lord and Savior. The other response is to reject his claims, as did the Jewish leaders, which will result in eternal damnation in hell. Jesus warned them in John 8, 24. Again, I quoted this a, a minute ago. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. We looked at the dishonor the Jewish leaders contemptuously insulted Jesus. We looked at the doubting. They did not believe what Jesus claimed. We looked at the defiance. They wanted to stone him. And we looked at the disappearance. Jesus hid himself because it was not yet time for him to die. And I opened with a question about the purpose of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus become a man? And I suggested that there are a variety of true answers, but that there was an ultimate answer, an ultimate purpose. So what is the ultimate purpose of Jesus Christ? I'm glad you asked. It's in this passage, verse 50. Jesus says that he does not seek his own glory. Verse 54, Jesus says that if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Whose glory then does he seek? Verse 49, he says, I honor my Father. Jesus sought to bring glory to God the Father. In John 17, 1, if you want to turn there, we don't have a slide for that. John 17, 1. Jesus, praying to the Father, says, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And three verses after that, John 17, 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus came to glorify God. That is the ultimate purpose of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, our goal is to become like Christ. Christian literally means little Christ. So the more like Jesus we become, the better Christians we are. And I'm not implying here that somehow we become more deserving of God's grace in offering us salvation, but rather that we become better Christians in that we become more holy and more righteous as Christ is holy and righteous. So the prime example of Christian living that we have is Jesus Christ, and Jesus came to glorify God. We are to glorify God. We study a couple of catechisms together as a family, and if you don't know what a catechism is, it's just a, it's just a series of questions and answers that help us understand what the Bible teaches. Probably the most famous catechism is the shorter Westminster Catechism, which begins its series of over 100 questions with the foundational question, what is the chief end of man? Or in a more modern vernacular, what is man's primary purpose? And the answer, man's primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Another catechism we use, it's more geared towards the younger kids. And it takes several questions to get to the same place. Question number one, who made you? God. Question number two, what else did God make? God made all things. And question number three, 
Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Why are you to glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. And then another key question, how am I to glorify God? Listen to this, how am I to glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. We glorify God in obedience to him. Jesus said that he came to do his Father's will. In Gethsemane, he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is obedience. Jesus came in obedience to God the Father. And again, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Our goal in life is to follow Jesus' example of glorifying God in obedience to him. John Piper is one of my favorite preachers. He's a pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota. I've got a quote from him that I want to share with you. We should have a slide for that. You and I were made for the express purpose of glorifying God in all times and places and circumstances. We were made to glorify God. Birds were made to fly. Fish were made to swim. We were made to glorify God. Everything in our life is an opportunity to glorify God or to not glorify God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all, everything, the whole lot of life, Do it all to the glory of God. So, every moment of every day, you and I will make decisions that either glorify or do not glorify God. This means that everything in our life is an opportunity to glorify God. And I submit to you that there are a few things in life that are just inherently evil and sinful and cannot be glorifying to God. Murder, abortion, Adultery are a few that come to mind. But most things in life, and even things that are inherently good things, can be used to either glorify God or not glorify God. One of the most common ways we, and I I speak of myself here as well, one of the most common ways that we do good things that do not glorify God is when we do them to glorify ourselves. For instance, preaching God's word is a good thing. And it can glorify God. But if I come up here to preach with the intent of trying to make myself look good or to be able to take pride in the fact that I preached at Mission Bible Fellowship, I take the glory away from God. Likewise, you can come to this church for all the right reasons and glorify God through it. Or you can come to this church today justifying your own righteousness that you're better than your neighbor who's out chasing elk this morning. And take the glory away from God. Or you can come merely out of an obligation and a duty instead of coming out of a wholehearted desire to worship the Almighty God of creation and see what He has to teach you today. Now, don't get me wrong. It is good and it is obedient to come to church even when you don't feel like it. Or if you aren't coming for the right reasons. But when you realize that your motives aren't right, it's time to repent of a sinful heart and ask God to purify it. You can cook breakfast in the morning in a joyful way that brings glory to God, knowing that you are loving your family as you do so, or you can cook breakfast in the morning in a begrudging way that steals the joy from your home and does not glorify God. Kids, you can go to school or the playground or to a sporting event or to a friend's house with a sincere desire to love others and share the joy of Jesus with them 
And you can glorify God doing those things. Or you can go to those places with an attitude of looking to please yourself and do what you want to do. And that takes the glory away from God. Even something as good as memorizing scripture, hiding God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. Even something as good as that can be done for the wrong reasons. If we memorize scripture to impress others with our ability to quote verses, we seek to glorify ourselves and not God. Giving tithes and offerings, a very good thing, but done with the wrong heart, the wrong motive, takes away the glory from God. Remember the Pharisees who like to give in front of a crowd, they drop their coins in so they'd make a nice loud clank to draw attention to their generosity. This concept is, I think, so crucial that the concept in our, that our goal in life is to glorify God in all that we do. And we could go on and on with examples. My family and I got firewood yesterday. And we can go out there and we can get firewood and we can work hard together and love each other and we can bring glory to God doing that. Or we can go out there and I can yell at the kids for not working hard enough and take that glory away from God. And this really goes back to the sermon that Pastor Stewart preached on confusion, the Tower of Babel, where they were striving to make a name for themselves. They were looking for their reputation. And that sermon really spoke to me because I'm a prideful, self-seeking, sinful creature. And uh, I don't see Jason here today, but if he was here, he'd be sitting back there saying, yeah, I work with him, I know all about that. I do not glorify God as I ought. When I get impatient with my kids for not sitting right in church, am I doing it because I care about them treating the worship of an almighty God who deserves reverence disrespectfully? Or am I upset because it reflects poorly on my parenting skills and I don't want to lose face with you? And those of you who lead our praise and singing time up here, do you do it for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to God? Or are you thinking about how well you look or perform up here? And listen, I'm not here to point the finger at anyone, and it's not for me to judge anyone's heart. And I know that we all struggle with doing things for our own glory instead of doing them for God. I don't think that any one of us has ever completely done anything in our lives entirely for the glory of God because we are totally depraved and in desperate need of a Savior. We all need to repent now and often and regularly of seeking our own glory. So I've basically preached this message twice now, and I think I'm more convicted this time than after the first time. Jesus said, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. How much more so for those of us who are not one with God? And as you leave here today and go about your lives this week, remember that, and remember that, Everything in our life is an opportunity to glorify God or not glorify God. I want to shift gears here in closing and talk about something else. October, this month, is Pastor Appreciation Month, and I want to read something that I found on the internet last night answering the question why is Pastor Appreciation Month necessary? This wasn't in my sermon last week, so he didn't listen to this and decided that I should preach. Why isn't Pastor Appreciation Month necessary? The nature of the service provided by fast pastors and their families is unique. God entrusted, has entrusted to them one of the most precious of assignments, the spiritual well-being of his flock. 
When a pastor becomes ineffective, the very souls of his or her parishioners are endangered. When eternity is in the balance, we should all be concerned. Pastors and their lives and their sorry, pastors and their families live under incredible pressures. Their lives are played out in a fishbowl. They even sit up front. With the entire congregation and community watching their every move, they are expected to have ideal families, to be perfect people, to always be available, to never be down, and to have all the answers we need to keep our own lives stable and moving forward. Those are unrealistic expectations to place on anyone, yet most of us are disappointed when a pastor becomes overwhelmed, seems depressed, lets us down, or completely burns out. That is why God has instructed us to recognize his servants. In 1 Timothy 5.17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I know many of you have expressed appreciation to the Guthries. I've seen it done verbally. I've seen it done on Facebook. I know that some of you have cooked meals for them. And there's probably much more that has been done that I do not know of. But I want to publicly express my appreciation for them and on behalf of the elders and and the rest of you here today to confirm your appreciation for them. And I would also like to ask you to take a few minutes now to write a note of encouragement to Pastor Stewart or Jennifer or the kids. And I'll give you the option. It would also be great if you would like to write a note of encouragement to Pastor Jim and Diane or to Pastor Ken and Pat. And you have a spot in your bulletin handout to do this. And if you need a bulletin or a pen, where's Mr. Usher Mike Better? There he is. He has pens and uh, and handout. It's on the handout that Rich noted earlier, a note of encouragement. Uh, just raise your hand and he'll bring you a pen or a note. So, let's take a couple of minutes and write a note of encouragement to a pastor. Pastor Stewart, we appreciate you for being willing to come here to Sealy Lake and preach the Word of God and not be ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You preach with authority. You stand on the truth with confidence and humility. And we appreciate you for loving your wife and for leading your family spiritually as God's called you to do. Thank you. And Jennifer, we appreciate you for coming here with Pastor Stewart to a land you'd never seen, leaving behind your family and home and friends. And we appreciate you for loving your kids and for standing with your man with respect and honor. And kids, Annabelle and Lila and Eli and Hunter, I too was a pastor's kid many years ago. So was Tom, and there may be others here as well. And I know at least a little bit what it's like to leave home and go far away to a new place. I went to Canada with my family when I was in third grade. We went to another country. It's probably probably not any worse than coming to Montana. It's often not easy, and I know you probably didn't have a lot of choice in the matter, but we as a church appreciate you kids for being here, for loving God, for obeying your parents, and for becoming friends with our kids. And let me tell you, even when it's tough and when it's cold here in Montana, it is way better to be living with a father who is in God's will than one who is not. 
So we thank you, Guthries, for being here. You are loved and appreciated. Let's close in prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as always, it is good to gather together in your house to worship you, to study your word, to fellowship together, and to, and to love each other. Father, this morning I, I want to thank you for providing a pastor for us, a shepherd for this flock, and you've been faithful throughout the history of this church to do so. We thank you for the pastors that have been here before, for those who have been here a long time, and for those who have been here short times. And, and we thank you now for Pastor Stewart and his family for being willing to answer your call coming here. And Lord, we pray that we as a church body could support and encourage them in a way that gives them honor and respect as, as your word says that, that they are due. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in their lives, that they would be heeding your Spirit's leading, and, and that you would be guiding and directing as Pastor Stewart prepares for preaching each week and as he deals with the issues that come up in the office and as he interacts with the community and, and the people of this church. Father, we are not worthy of the blessings that you give us. We do have a desire to glorify you and honor you, and we do not do it in a way that we should. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the salvation that you grant us, by the sanctification that you are working in our lives, that we would be more and more in tune with doing things to your glory and not to our own glory. Father, I thank you again for this church body that we can fellowship together with you every Sunday without persecution, openly and publicly. And I pray that your will would be done here at Mission Bible Fellowship. Amen.